0: Tandem Investment Advisors present Tandem Talk, a quarterly financial podcast hosted by Tandem President and Founder John Carew, with additional commentary provided by Billy Little, Ben Carew, and Jordan Watson.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Tandem Talk. This is installment four, the unmasked version. We've got some good topics for you today. It's been a while since we've gathered Thank you for coming back to visit with us. Today, we're going to talk about the weird imbalances in supply and demand. We're going to discuss what we see uh, that might keep this market humming and what might derail this market. As we conclude, we're going to spend a little bit of time visiting the cash situation. But before we do, I thought it would be fun to, well, first, to introduce you, reintroduce you to the panel here. I am joined by the investment team. I'm John Carew. I'm here with Billy Little. Hello. Ben Carew. Hey, how's it going? And Jordan Watson.
2: Hey.
1: A lot's happened since we've been together, so I thought I would just start by throwing this out to you guys. I'm I'm not trying to throw you under the bus here. If
3: nothing comes to mind, that's cool. We'll move on to a planned topic, but what's on your mind? Earnings are up a lot. Um, I think the biggest thing that's happened since the last time we spoke in February? Yes. Is going into the second quarter, looking back at first quarter earnings, estimates were of 20% growth of earnings, um, probably around 6%, 7% sales growth. And at the time, that looked like a big jump. Since then, we've all been shocked by nearly 50% earnings growth in this most recent quarter with sales growth coming in around 10 percent. So clearly if you got 10 percent sales growth, 50 percent earnings growth, margins are contributing a bulk of that. Um, What else is contributing a bulk of that is financials. You know, a year ago this time a lot of the banks were building up reserves. Well now they can release all, all those reserves. So it's not necessarily operating earnings but nonetheless Earnings have taken a huge jump higher. Estimated earnings for the next quarter are right now 59%.
1: Bank reserves being released means increased
3: lending? It could. Okay. But not necessarily. It doesn't It doesn't necessarily mean that they are lending more. All it means is they can basically not hold as much capital. Return it to against, shareholders. Correct. They okay. can return it to shareholders, but it's what they want to do they can lend it they can return it to shareholders but it's not going against protecting potentially bad loans they're basically saying loans are getting better the prospects of loans are getting better
1: it is interesting i think to some so have the rules changed or do banks still make money as spreads widen it doesn't in other words it doesn't matter if interest rates are low or high as long as short-term rates are lower than long-term rates. At least that's what I learned in econ class. Is that still the, the rule oh, ab- of the day or has
3: it changed? Absolutely, and I think that's why you've seen regional banks do so much better than the big banks. Because big banks, big banks yeah, that's part of how they make money, but they also make money from trading and credit card fees. I mean, they, they're spread out. Regional banks, your t- true local bank, is making money from borrowing short lending long.
1: Well said. So uh, I get comments from time to time that we must like banks because the financial sector is, not, th- not that we pay attention to sector weightings by any means, we don't, we're completely sector agnostic, yet we are in fact more overweighted in the financial sector than in any other sector of the S&P 500. And we're doing that Owning one bank in the mid-cap strategy, so how is it that we're overweighted in financials?
3: We own exchanges, we own the CBOE. We own ICE, which owns the New York Stock which Exchange. Which owns the New York Stock Exchange? We own FactSet, uh-huh. a data provider. So we we own Brown and Brown, which which is a insurance, insurance company. So
4: Hero and BlackRock are asset managers.
3: Yeah. So I mean, we've got exposure to Much smaller to, competitors of ours. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just a little bit. Uh, we have. No, we do have exposure to financials but it's but the exposure that we have um they're not the type of financials where a year ago when when banks had to bring on more reserves earnings would drop by 30 40 50% cuz it's a direct hit on your net income now that they're releasing reserves their income is going up by 30 40 50% it's much harder to model out long-term sustainability of earnings growth when you have that type, those type of swings?
4: Yeah, I think uh, you talked about long-term sustainability of just business. And a lot of the financials that we own seem to sort of be more fee-based anyways. You think about FactSet, you're actually obligated to pay your agreement with FactSet, right? So they have this recurring revenue stream similar to ICE or even sort of T. Rowe and BlackRock. So they have much more predictable, and I think to, your, to sort of what you were saying, in a way sustainable, a more sustainable business model than some of the more traditional financial companies like a money center bank.
1: We're off and running. That's a good intro. So Billy, EPS was earnings were on your mind. Anybody else want to throw out something before we move into the meat of this conversation? I feel like we've
4: handled uh, some incoming calls recently talking about the market sell-off. I think that we'd be remiss not to sort of Touch on that a little bit. Touch on it. The S P is fairly unharmed in all of this. The major as of invest- this recording. Right, yeah, right. Good point. <laughs> which Let's see is, what happens when it comes which out. Which <laughs> is Monday, May the seventeenth. Right. So I think uh a lot of the sort of retail trade that got picked up on, the sort of Reddit trade that was getting talked about in January and the specs and some of these non profitable names, like Tesla and things like that. And Tesla is now more profitable. But the sort of more popular trades that you saw in the back half of 2020 and the start of 2021 have really started to sort of get uh, unwound a little bit. And So you saw these names that were just off to the races. I mean, I think Goldman Sachs Non-Profitable Index was up 380%. You know, you wrote
1: about that in in one of your recent notes. I didn't even know that was an index. The Non-Profitable Tech Index? I think it's just
4: something that's sort of loosely followed. (laughs) But it's down, I think, close to 40% from its highs. And so that's where a lot of the pain has been in the market. And so I had somebody call the other day and ask if we were seeing a lot of opportunity. And it's the space that we find ourselves in has been relatively unaffected so far. Knock on wood, let's hope it stays that way. Whereas you've seen a lot more pain in other parts of the market that we just don't really participate in. But I want to reemphasize the name of that (laughs) index, the (laughs) non-profitable,
1: one of our core things is that we demand a company grow through any economic environment. We measure growth in terms of earnings. (laughs) So there aren't any names in the Goldman Sachs non-profitable index. Yeah, unfortunately we do not participate
3: in that (laughs) index.
1: Okay, but I'm sure it had been a high flyer and that's where you're seeing most of the
4: pullback now, right? Yeah, a lot of those names, SPACs. I mean, SPACs have just been getting crushed and same with some of those sort of more popular corners like the ARK investment funds and and things like that
1: okay a lot of um SPACs have been getting crushed and it seems like a lot of the uh leading advocates of SPACs have sort of removed themselves from the spotlight and
4: from their investments yeah some of
2: them yeah you saw uh Chamath Palihapitiya easy for out you of, to say. uh Virgin Galactic prior to yeah. its recent slide and Ben to your point it's somewhat indicative of just positioning um, in the market you know the S&P was down just over four percent during that recent slide yet on CNBC you have people coming on and it would make you think that we're in a 10-15 percent correction so it's somewhat indicative of how people are positioned in the market specifically the retail trade SPACs with some of the EV stocks that are trading on twenty, twenty-five, electric vehicle. Thank you that are trading on 2025, 2026 earnings in sales that don't even have a price to sales ratio because they have no revenue. (laughs) Uh, So you've seen those stocks really take Have I been transported back to 1999? (laughs) I will say one
4: thing thing you just said, uh, I said it too, we both called it the retail trade. And I think that's a little bit of a bad name because it's not just, it's not like it's just retail investors. I mean, there's hedge funds that are in a lot of these same names and some have blown up spectacularly and have made headlines during that blow up. So, I mean, it's it's not like it is just, it's not to pick on retail. It's kind of a bad name. I said it too, but I did just sort of want to point out that it's not just retail playing in these names. Okay,
1: so there are some weird things going on. Some of it is COVID related. Some of it is because we had a ship stuck in the Suez Canal for a while. Some of it is because we had a bizarre freeze in Texas that apparently put the foam industry out of business. (laughs) Um, But we're seeing a lot of bizarre demand in unusual but interesting places in the economy. We're also seeing some bizarre supply issues in the economy. So let's start with demand. Why is there so much demand for so many things? We've got home goods taking months to deliver and travel and leisure i booked a hotel room i'm i'm finally traveling for business again i was telling billy this last week i booked a hotel room same hotel i always stay in on this particular trip it is more than three times as expensive now as it was pre-covid tried to book a vacation couldn't it's all sold out so who wants to talk about this incredible demand? What do we attribute it to? Is it, is it sustainable? Are we in a new paradigm? Um,
3: or do we even care? Some of the demand is definitely just the pent-up demand from being locked down for a year. Nobody has been taking vacations, so they're going to all scramble out and, and do that now. So that's clearly some of, some of the demand. Some of the demand is also coming from the, I don't know what round of stimulus checks we're on, three or three or four, but people are getting money, um, checks in the mail, so that's got to find a home, and you know one of the one of the other things.
1: Wait, 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 wait! Not to be sarcastic here, but um, are you telling me that that money's not going to basic essential needs?
3: Probably not all of it. Okay. <laughs> Um, wow. Uh I'm sure some of some of it is but a lot of it had found you know when we were still locked up, a lot of it had found its way into equity markets, crypto markets. That's kind of where you saw a lot of a, a lot of the move in some of these Reddit trades was from from individuals putting their stimulus money to work. Supply and demand in the stock market
1: works like it does in any other part of the economy Absolutely. when there's increased Demand and supply is the same. Prices rise. Correct. So we saw a market rally in the Reddit trade names or the Robin Hood names, presumably because demand ticked up for these names when supply was constant. So let me pose this. For those types of things that benefited from increased demand due to stimulus or pent up or whatever, how long does it take for that demand to unwind or to be transferred to something else? And is there any consequence to that? So if we can now travel, perhaps instead of trading in our Robinhood account, we are doing something else with that money,
3: no? No, that, and that's what I think you're seeing is the shift in the SPACs having been down. Some of these reddit trades. Let's remind everybody what a spAC down. is. Who wants to tackle that? Special purpose acquisition company. It's a. it's essentially a way for private companies to go public without going through the process of IPOing. Okay. It's in it's an, So you
1: raise money in this special purpose vehicle for the purpose of then taking a private company public Public. into the special purpose vehicle correct okay just want to make sure listeners were on the same page
3: and so what you saw with a lot of these speculative names is they went way up and as as ben and jordan have said you know they have come back down significantly at the same time the economy is opening up so one could assume that the you know individuals retail investors that were buying these speculative vehicles, making speculative trades, they're no longer making those trades. They'd rather go out, go to the restaurant, go to the Caribbean, whatever it is. Their money is being used elsewhere, and I think that's maybe what you're seeing with your hotel stay. Is a lot of people are doing what you're doing. It may not be for business, but they're getting out now. Whether or not that is sustainable. I think that's up for debate. Unless you, you know, you still have eight to nine million people out of work right when the pandemic hit. Unless we are just going to continue down the road of fiscal stimulus, that money will dry up if people are not, those eight to nine million people are not put back to work. So demand will come back down, I suspect, if the jobs are not filled.
4: I was going to say, I I suspect that you're right, that, that demand likely is a little bit more transitory. And it, it depends largely upon that fiscal stimulus that is supporting so many people right now. But if that doesn't go away, then it being transitory probably doesn't really go away either, which is sort of what you were saying. But I just wanted to underscore that I do think a lot of that demand is sort of being driven by the government, which is certainly helping our economy recovery. I mean, don't get me wrong, but it's also causing some inflationary issues, which we've all seen and touched on a lot over the past couple of months.
1: So are you in the inflation is transitory, i.e. temporary camp with Jerome Powell, or do you see it being more um, persistent?
4: I think that you'd have to define transitory, because I think Jerome Powell's definition of transitory, I believe it doesn't go out more than a couple months. We're not in the business of making these forecasts, but I don't really see why it would really even change this year. Whereas the Fed seems to be more of the opinion that this is really just during the, the reopening of the economy, which we're still in the middle of, but that that will ultimately die down. But I think that we've been talking about demand a lot, but you're seeing inflation, not just in hotels, I mean, you're seeing it in other things too. You're seeing it in commodities. So you're seeing costs actually going up for companies, which Billy, you were talking about margin expansion for so many companies, but eventually those costs are going to be making their way through the economy and through companies, and you would expect it to ultimately start hurting some companies' bottom lines, I would think. Particularly
1: those that can't pass on increased costs to their consumer. Correct. Are we seeing any of that
3: yet? We're not, are we? No, I don't think you've seen any. Not that I've heard of from the companies that we own or companies that we follow, that they're having trouble passing on the costs. What they have said in the past few weeks is they are raising prices. There's no doubt about that. They have to pass on those costs. But there hasn't been any pushback from, oh, we cannot do this yet.
4: I think that that side of the coin is less transitory. I think once it starts, I think people getting checks in their mailbox and spending is transitory. But if companies start passing on the cost, that to me seems more problematic from an economic standpoint.
1: So the flip side of the coin is we've talked about increased demand. Let's talk about decreased supply. We're seeing shortages. Now, some of them are explainable for other reasons. A pipeline gets hacked and shut down for a week and there's no gasoline at the local station. Johns Island, where I live, has three gas stations and they're all closed. Um, but uh, what about shortages? Is that transitory? Is that because of increased demand? Or is there something that's causing it to be harder for manufacturers just to supply basic demand?
3: I think a lot of it is building up of inventory that was essentially drawn down a year ago this time and never built back up because everything shut Shut down. down. And we talked about this a year ago. I don't know if it was in May or August a year ago, but we we had, I wouldn't say a a heated debate about inflation or, or what it was, but, you know, at that time... I wouldn't say it was 100% clear, but it was pretty clear that supply chains were messed up and it wasn't going to be something where once manufacturers, once factories get back online and it wasn't, oh, we went from zero to 100. It was this easing in that all of a sudden these cost pressures and the broken supply chains are automatically just going to fix them. It takes a lot of time to get through the system and that's what we're seeing today from things that happened a year ago. What you'll probably ultimately see is this continued inflationary pressure, at least through the end of this year till next year. So now it's gone from raw costs to now the finished product, and now companies are now saying that they're going to start increasing costs. Well, that doesn't happen overnight either. And so that happens with a lack. So you're going to see another quarter of... Now, companies are starting to catch up um, and match their costs with trying to increase revenues. I think this story can play out for several more months.
4: That's why I thought Jerome Powell's definition of transitory, I'd take issue with that. I think his issue or his definition of transitory being a couple months is probably wrong. Now, I do think it's transitory in the sense that eventually we will get beyond this inflationary period as supply chains get worked out. But... Like you said, Billy, I think that takes takes a little bit more time. It's It's not just by the end of June, snap your fingers, it's
1: done. I want to try to state this a little bit differently. So some of the shortages that we are seeing are actually still a result of COVID because things got shut down, inventories went to zero. So now not only are you trying to meet existing demand for your service or product, but you're trying to fill your pipeline back up again to pre-COVID levels. That's a challenge, and so we have shortages in those areas, whatever they may be. And then we also have shortages because people behave like absolute idiots. Ben had an interesting take on the gas shortage that there is no lack of supply. That even though, well, you say it for me. You know where I'm going, I cause think we had this conversation. I think it was
4: reported. I don't know about now. Right, it was but still, it's interesting. To- that as gas stations were running out of gas, it was actually a demand issue, not a supply issue. Now, by the Demand
1: end- spiked because we were afraid that there would be no supply, so we bought more than we needed, just like the toilet paper thing a year ago. Correct. Right?
4: And by the end of the pipeline fiasco, that might have flipped. I, d- I don't know about by the end. But at the very beginning, at least, it was a demand issue, not a supply issue.
3: Fair enough. Well, supply dried up because everyone-, well, exactly. <laughs> everyone filled up their cars. It Dry- and- <laughs> was
4: caused by demand, not by a lack of... Demand surge right. shortage. More than supply drop. Right. Fair At enough. Least initially.
1: So moving on to the next topic, let's talk about what keeps this market humming. Stimulus. What's the next topic? <laughs> okay. What happens when stimulus runs out?
3: More stimulus.
4: <laughs> Seriously.
3: I mean. I, no, I, I, I touched on it briefly in the last observations that this really seems like this never-ending cycle. I don't know if we're, if we're trapped in this, this stimulus, but you know, the Fed, everyone's calling for them to taper QE. But if you're running deficits of $2 trillion and $3 trillion, someone has to buy that debt to fund the deficit. And since the pandemic last year, foreign investment in our treasuries have declined. Really? Yes. So I don't know the exact numbers off the top of my head, but I believe the Fed owns 38% of all U.S. debt. Japan did step back in a little bit as yields rose, right? I don't know that to so be exact. I know just, on the net let me just, that foreign investment no, let me has just been down. Pose- no, no,
4: I believe that. I just meant as yields actually started to rise for a brief stretch, it was enticing enough. You would think it would, Yes. That some foreign investors were potentially starting to step back in. But the Fed can only let that go so high, to your point, which is sort of that self-exactly, that vicious cycle that we sort of find ourselves in. It seems to me that U.S. real rates,
1: nominal rates, are significantly higher than other developed countries, right?
3: Nominal rates.
1: Nominal rates.
3: Yes. Not so much real rates. Nominal
1: rates. Real rates are still they're Quite still dangerous. negative. Yes. Real rates, are, but how about in other parts of the world?
3: They're still negative mm-hmm. in other parts of the world too.
1: Right. So, do we not have, at least for the time being, a built-in audience for our debt, because it pays
3: more than anybody else's? So you have a built-in audience, but I'll just throw this out there: what if that audience eventually? sees what's happening with massive deficits year after year, and you lose the kind of trust factor of the U.S. government, the Fed, the Treasury, I think that's that. ultimately the belief in, in you know, if you're going to buy something, you believe in the backer. Right. And I don't but, think it has to mean that the U.S. You, government is no longer trusted. No, I no, no. no. It, I'm not suggesting it that. It could
4: almost be a quicker... Almost sort of like a, the taper tantrum, but to the other side of them. I mean, it could just be a quick market reaction, where market participants quickly, are sort of questioning what's going on, and then it reverts back to, a little bit more normal of an environment. So, right? but yeah, but
1: let me let me throw this out, and and by the way, I believe there is a credible argument that our Treasury and our Federal Reserve are heavily incented. To keep our interest rates low and to continue to buy our treasuries. They have to, they the, have to I, be, It would right. be catastrophic if they ceased to do that. But, Billy, you said you have to have some sort of trust in the issuer. And I would say that throughout most of my th- three-plus decades in this crazy business, That is absolutely the case. I'm not so sure it is anymore. I think we are in a place where we are awash in liquidity and the issuer or the company is far less important than ever before in my lifetime. We are far more interested in a sector or an asset class than I would argue that we are in the particulars of who issued
4: that debt or common stock. That's go. That's why cryptocurrency is a thing, because people are are no longer trusting those institutions. So I would say that, to a certain extent, and not commenting on the validity of cryptos, but that is why people are drawn to that space because they are so they've become so disillusioned.
1: Is it really though or is that the rationalization for why people are drawn to that space? Have we just seen it go space, so far so fast that we've decided that that's an price. asset
4: that we need to allocate to? It. Well, I'm not talking about the price of a bitcoin or or whatever, but that is the reason why bitcoin was created. Why no, it was the financial created. crisis was because of what central banks around the world were doing. That's not a comment on the price of any of those Understood. things, they could be Understood. well overpriced, I have no idea. But that is why those assets exist. So to Billy's point, there is there's a little bit of credence to what you had to say, clearly some are becoming disillusioned. Now that doesn't mean it's right, the market will ultimately decide, but there is some validity to that. The point that I'm throwing
1: out there, I think crypto is a good example of. There are intelligent people who understand crypto. and the reason it might make sense. And there are, then there are the rest of the world like me who couldn't explain it if, if you gave me the, the Wikipedia page to, to try to explain it to you. And yet the mindset is we just have to own this because we have to own this. And so it doesn't, we reach places in market cycles where what we are actually investing in is far less important than the fact that we are invested in it. Have we reached Mm -hmm. that point in asset classes or am I making a mountain out of a molehill?
4: I think in some asset classes you're actually past that point, which is what we sort of started to call off talking about. You're seeing non-profitable tech names, (laughs) which were up 380%, (laughs) have since pulled back 40%. So you are seeing that, right? I mean, the only reason to get into that when it's up 300% Is because you're chasing performance at that time, right? And so you've seen that unwind. So I don't think you're making a mountain out of a molehill. I think that you are seeing that unwind. So is that how this market
1: is derailed, or can this market keep going? And if that's not how it's derailed, what do you see that could be a, a roadblock for this market?
4: I think that to that point, sentiment, which is sort of what we just discussed, sentiment, Could be an issue if it bleeds into the rest of the market. Does anybody,
1: just just for our listeners' benefit, does anybody remember the wording of the Fed's statement that they released
4: last week about sentiment? They talked about how valuations are high. Right. And Mm -hmm. how markets are sort of stretched. Right. And that a shift in sentiment. A shift in investor sentiment could cause a
2: significant equity market pull. Equ-
4: significant equity market pullback. I think that sentiment, if it bleeds it. I mean, you're seeing really, really bad sentiment, specifically in tech and some of those high-flying names. And if that bleeds into the rest of the market, it could be problematic. And I think that inflation, which we've talked about now for three or four tandem talks in a row, could actually be a large a, a cause for concern. True. Fair enough.
1: So let me let me pose this. As of today's close, I believe the S&P and NASDAQ, maybe the Dow, I'm not sure, are negative for the month of May. So are the things that we are talking about actually beginning to manifest themselves in the marketplace, or is this just simply more following the trend and we're selling in May because the old adage is, sell in May and go away, right? Prior to the financial crisis, Selling in May and returning to the market in October was a winning strategy. Since then, we've had so much stimulus thrown at the market that you
3: didn't really need to
1: sell in May. Right. You
3: buy in May, you buy in June, you (laughs) buy in July. Exactly.
1: exactly. But, I mean, could this be sell in May or is there something more mischievous at play here? So that's actually
4: a really interesting question. Wow, spent, thank you. <laughs> we've spent some time. Talking, <laughs> we've spent some time talking about inflation to this point. And I mean if you looked at commodities year to date, I mean they've been on fire. Everything has. But what you've actually seen for most of May is you've seen a lot of that trend reverse. So lumber, which is up fifty-two percent this year, is down twelve percent this month. Sugar up ten percent this year, negative for the month. Corn up thirty-five percent this year, down this month so you're seeing this inflationary trade potentially start to reverse itself a little bit now is it just taking a breather or is it actually reversing i think that is the sort of more important question so what i'm hearing you say is we need to wait until june to find out <laughs> <laughs> until the next tandem
3: Well, talk. To, yeah we'll wait till august till the next tandem talk to let you know that how it have, happened happen,
2: Ben, to that point um I would say it looks like the market is definitely pricing in that it is just temporary, and that that trend may continue. Right, a lot of the commodity curves, specifically lumber, is in backwardation right now. Right, so it's deeply so. Yeah, which means uh, so futures contracts forward out are trading lower than today's contract. When okay, you in the ex- distance, it's cheaper. Correct. Than it is in the present, which, which is, is unusual. Un- un- unusual. That is called backwardation. Right. In theory prices should rise from today should right. be more expensive than
1: what you're saying is that if we really if the marketplace really viewed inflation mm-hmm. as a persistent issue mm-hmm. future prices in the future would be higher than prices in the present, right, and the futures market is not pricing things that way,
4: right in right. a lot of commodities, yes, but you are starting to see the futures market price in increases in the Fed funds rate so people the market is starting to anticipate the Fed being a little bit more aggressive to potentially curb some of that inflation so this is
1: let's don't go too far down this path but it just popped into my head and I'm just curious to know what you guys think market is pricing in future Fed rate
3: increases yes yes that's earlier than what the Fed is saying right
4: Mm -hmm.
1: earlier than what the fed is saying the probability creep
4: keeps increasing
1: so in a in a bizarre twist sort of way the expectation of increased rates um well i just shot that down but if rates actually were to rise here because the fed tightened or yes because the fed tightened causing rates to rise does that cause an increase in demand for our higher interest rates, thereby putting a ceiling on how high rates can rise in the marketplace
3: I think so um, and again, I think it the the Fed also is not going to uh, will not have will not step back from watching this w- wondering if if someone else is going to come in. I just, I don't see them. I don't see the QE trade. I don't see that ending anytime soon. Um, it, and so ultimately, yes, I, I don't think, I, I don't think interest rates have much more room to go higher because we can't afford them to go higher. So whether it be international investors seeking yield, um, the domestic insurance companies just drooling over the 1.7% 10-year. I, I just can't see a scenario right now, which means that they will go higher. Um, I, I, I can't see a scenario where they go higher. Before we put our, the last awake,
1: not woke, but awake member of our listening audience to sleep, let's get to the good topic that everybody loves to talk to us about, I know we all have plenty of phone calls. Um, Billy, I know you've written about this in your monthly column observations. Ben, I don't know if you've touched on this recently in your column notes from the trading desk, but I certainly talk about this regularly in my tandem report, which is quarterly. You all should read that or listen to it if you prefer. All are downloadable on our website, but... We do get a lot of questions about cash. Um, if If the market is perceived to have fallen on a given day, people are anxious to know if we've put cash to work. If the market falls two days in a row, people are anxious to know if we've put cash to work. People often ask why we have cash, but more interesting to me is we're bringing in new business pretty regularly precisely because we're not putting your money to work at a potential market top. The best analogy I've come up with, and I'm gonna bore you guys with this briefly, and then I'll ask you your thoughts and and how you respond to this, but, you know, people have this, for whatever reason, notion that they are invested in the market when they're invested with us, right? You, You get that all the time. The market moves in one direction or another, and surely we are Moving in lockstep with that, but we're not we're not invested in the market We are invested in companies that meet our criteria at prices We think are reasonable to pay so to try to get investors to think differently about us I pose this I say imagine listener that I come to your hometown wherever you are listening to us from today and I say I believe that residential real estate in your hometown is where I want my money to go to work. And I persuade you to take my money and to go out and construct for me a portfolio of residential real estate in your hometown. You're gonna have your own criteria, whatever they may be. And you're gonna go out and identify properties that meet your criteria. Then you're gonna negotiate for those properties to try to purchase them at prices that you think are reasonable. That doesn't happen by just going out and buying the market of your hometown. You're identifying properties that meet your criteria at a price you think are reasonable to pay. Now, you have finished constructing that portfolio. However long that takes you is however long it takes you. You're not motivated by pages turning on a calendar. You're finding companies, I mean properties, in our case, companies, that you want to invest in at prices you want to pay, and somebody comes along and says, hey, that house you bought on Main Street, I want to pay you three times what you paid. You'd be crazy not to take advantage of your good fortune that somebody wants to so radically overpay you for a piece of property that you just bought. So, of course, because this is my money, you sell it to them because that's the right thing for you to do. Are you selling it to them because you have some other property in mind? No, of course not. You're selling it to them because that property deserves to be sold at that inflated price, right? Now imagine you have received the proceeds from that sale and you're back at work looking for another property that meets your criteria at a price you think is reasonable to pay and some other insane person comes along and offers to overpay you for another property. Now you have even more cash. Do you have even more cash because you have a view of the market in your hometown? No, you have more cash because people offered you more than you thought your properties were worth faster than you could find new properties to buy. And so cash in your portfolio of real estate rose. It didn't rise because you're making some sweeping statement. But here's the really good news. Now you have a cash reserve to put to work when a property or properties come along that are compelling to you. End of story. That's how cash works in this hypothetical portfolio. It's how cash works in a tandem portfolio. I've had some reasonable feedback from that analogy i don't know if any of you guys have heard me say that before it's usually back here in the corner in my little zoom studio <laughs> when i say this and i don't know that we've had a discussion about it but that's how i talk to people about it what are you hearing what would you like our listeners to know um, about the importance of cash in our portfolio or the lack of importance whatever you think you'd like to convey
3: they're listening I think, I think exactly what you said. I mean, it makes complete sense to me. I don't have a ton to add other than the way that I typically approach it is just to bring it back to our discipline, uh, to our process. And cash is ultimately the byproduct of our discipline. More stocks. We have more stocks to buy than sell. Cash goes down. More to sell to buy. Cash goes up to me it's you know the way that we manage it obviously in bias that makes all the sense to me in the world um to not to not have to put it to work for any any reason specifically for a mandate just to be fully invested at all given times um but we can put that cash to work when we find opportunities to me that seems like the way that you'd want to spend your cash is to put it, put it to work when you find that, that opportunity. Right, um, That's the way I typically approach it.
4: Yeah,
1: I think that's a
3: great answer. I think I,
1: it's just a little different, right, from what most people expect because they, I, I think most of our listeners think that we're investing in the market. And we're not. We're investing in businesses, right?
4: Yeah. right. I think one of the questions that I get a lot, which is sort of a variation of the cash question is, when will it get put to work? And the answer is, truthfully, no idea. I mean, I don't know if it's going to be tomorrow, six months from now, a year. I mean, there's no telling. I know eventually it'll get put to work. But and it doesn't happen. necessarily take a market
1: event, right? Correct Money enough. gets put to work at a, cor- at a company level event, right?
4: Correct. Correct. But generally speaking, what needs to happen, because there's more things in the world right now for us to sell than to buy, our valuations need to come down. Now, that doesn't mean prices need to come down. Billy started the call off talking about earnings growth, about how earnings are up over 50%. Price isn't necessarily doing that exact same thing anymore. I mean, price has sort of flattened out the last couple of weeks while earnings has gone through the roof. Valuations are coming down. Valuations can come down in two explain ways. Explain that. Yeah, explain that. Price can come down. If you think about a price-to-earnings ratio, which is price divided by earnings, there's two parts to that formula. Price and earnings. If price comes down, which is a market correction or a company correction, valuations come down. If price stays constant and earnings goes up, valuation goes down. Or if earnings just goes up faster than price
1: goes up, correct valuation goes down.
4: And so you don't have to see some massive pullback for cash to get put to work. You could easily see an environment like 2014, 2015, 2016, where markets just trade sideways and you start to grow into the valuations that we have today, which is sort of what you're seeing this quarter, which is sort of Billy, really how I think you started to call off.
3: Correct, I mean, when you, when you look, just to go back real quickly to the earnings growth that you're seeing, the 50% this quarter, expectations of 59% next quarter, when you bake that in, and let's say this quarter's in the books, let's say next quarter we do have the 59%, and you look out Q3, Q4, Q1, 22, Q2, 22. You know, we're, we're still trading at a level with all of that earnings growth at 21 and a half times that earnings. And 21 and a half times that earnings is still much higher than anything we saw in the past 10 years. Right. So this market could just trade sideways for the next however long to grow into that.
1: When you go this far, this fast, the increased likelihood of borrowing future price appreciation is real, right?
4: Yeah, you're just, you're exactly right. And it's something that we talk about often here. When valuations are elevated, your future returns are, are less likely to be what they once were from a lower valuation. And we've seen a terrific decade plus of investment returns now perhaps we won't have the same decade-plus moving forward. I was talking to somebody the other day, and they were sort of asking what we think is going to happen over the next year. It's like, well, market's already up 70-plus percent through the end of March. It's probably not likely to be up 70-plus percent again through the end of next March. That just doesn't seem very likely, right? So you sort of do borrow forward, I think, exactly like you said, John. Well said.
1: So um – um I think this has been a good conversation. I hope the listeners have enjoyed it before I wrap this up. Um, ben, you said when we were uh, taking a break a minute ago, at least I think it was Ben maybe it was somebody else just that we might have been leaning towards the dark side a little bit in some of those <laughs> some of those conversations and I want to convey to the listener that we are we are not sitting here um, with. Bottled water and gold bars waiting waiting for the end to come. Or I guess I should say cryptocurrency, but I'm too old to understand what <laughs> cryptocurrency is, even if I did have the Wikipedia page. But so before we say goodbye, um, is there anything, I mean, I think we're all generally optimistic people around this table. So is there anything you want the listener to know before we leave?
4: Yeah, I think that we are all optimistic. I mean, our portfolio is 75% long. It's not right. like we're short anything. <laughs> right, or, yeah. I mean, right. if if we didn't think that those names were going to be up, we wouldn't be in them like that. So we're quite optimistic about what it is that we own. If anything, I just wish that there was more of it that we could own.
1: Good deal. I agree. And I will say, not to belabor the point, but um, or, or to tout my own writing, but I I did write a very... Influential piece, I think, in the um, (laughs) January, tongue in cheek, people, in the January Tandem Report, where I said the notion of being in or out of the market is a false choice. The market has an upward bias, it always has and it always will. But contrary to how most of us view the market, when prices are high and rising, when the economy is booming when things are nearly perfect risk is greater it doesn't feel like it in the moment but risk is greater and you need to decrease the risk in your portfolio when prices are falling and economic signals are less than bright it feels in the moment that risk is rising But things are on sale. I don't know about you shoppers, but I like sales better than I like marked up merchandise. So that's how we approach this. Um, I will end uh, by thanking the panel, Billy, Ben, and Jordan. Thank you very much. Thank you all. I also want to thank Elaine Natoli, our brilliant director of communications whose brainchild tandem talk is, we are humbled and gratified by the reception that this medium has been given by you all, the listener. Uh, It's only quarterly. Obviously, this is way too taxing for us to do any more frequently than that. Really, we just don't want to bore you more frequently than that, but we really appreciate the listens that you guys have been giving us. It means a lot. I want to thank the voice of Tandem, the producer of this podcast, Margie White. If you listen to the Tandem Report observations or notes from the trading desk, that is Margaret White's voice that you hear. And we want to thank her for cleaning up this and getting all the unusable portions of this out so that when you hear this, it sounds professionally produced. That is Margaret White. So thank you all. We hope to speak to you again soon. Enjoy.
0: Tandem Talk is produced by Margaret White, directed by Elaine Natoli, with music written and performed by Lauren Crepinzano. Nothing contained in this podcast should be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any security, nor construed as financial or investment advice. Tandem Investment Advisors, Inc. does not represent that the securities, products, or services discussed on this podcast are suitable for any particular investor. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please consult your financial advisor before making any investment decisions. All past portfolio purchases and sales are available upon request.